The Way Out Podcast, episode 180. I grew up in a two-parent family, at least initially, and my dad was uh, an alcoholic, and uh, my mom was was not an alcoholic, although she was codependent. She had some other issues going on. Um, and I was, um, so I grew up in a, in a household where I was really, really close to my mom. Um, my mom was just this incredibly loving, nurturing person. Um, she uh, she just was one of these people who would do anything for anybody, you know, and, and, and um, you know, and that's sort of the codependency part of it too. But she later in life became a big enabler to me, but you know, she was just extremely loving and giving. And um, and my dad was, uh, was, was remote. He was a real smart guy. He was a biology teacher, but he was emotionally very remote. And he didn't, I, I, what I came to find out later in life is he didn't know how to connect with me, even though he desperately loved me and wanted to. Um, and, you know, he was a practicing alcoholic. So um, he would get real volatile and, 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 and he never abused me physically or anything like that, but he would break stuff and scream and yell and verbally abuse and, and all that kind of stuff. So my sure. mom was, was my sanctuary and my one safe place. I have these moments that I remember where I felt happy, like just these moments where I felt like comfortable in my skin and happy, but they were really few and far between. There seems to be this yearning to connect at a really fundamental level that is almost more profound than alcoholics and addicts than the average people that I've met. And I felt like I was just living life to its fullest. And, and, and I, always, I always wanted to do things to the extreme, you know, like I wasn't drinking to, to, to escape at that time. I was drinking because I felt like I was connecting more deeply. I really did. Um, and, that, and, and, I, and, I, and I celebrated all these artists and writers and musicians who are alcoholics and addicts. And I felt like they understood that this is what we did to fully suck the essence out of life, man. You went to extremes, took drugs, you took alcohol to make everything more intense. He was this just beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, full of sunshine, wonderful woman. And um, and usually, not the kind of girl I usually liked, you know, I, I, was, I was like into the like dark-haired, kind of goth, depressed, crazy chicks and, and this this woman was just like sunshine and light and, and stuff that i wouldn't normally you know be into but i i had this feeling that you know i knew i was drinking too much and i knew it was causing me to to, to my behavior started changing i started getting i'd always been kind of sarcastic and and snarky but i started getting mean-spirited right. and and um cruel sometimes when i drank i would uh, i called it going to the dark side Right. And I didn't know I'd gone to the dark side until the next day when I thought back to what I would said, but I was out to hurt people. I, I really wanted to bring people down and, and I thought that she was a good woman who would cure me of my wicked ways. I started kind of realizing that I was drinking earlier and earlier in the day, right? And so, and I kept setting times of the day that I wouldn't drink before and then bringing that back on the clock. <laughs> a little bit <laughs> as time went on you know what i mean and just sort of nickel and diamond it until you know it i i was starting to drink pretty early and um and just drink all day and valentine's day i forget what year it was but it was valentine's day and um and i was out at the, my girl my my fiance was pregnant 
since she was at home and I told her that I was going to cook dinner for her and I told her that I had the, uh, at the last second I had this opportunity to do this wine tasting at this new like cocktail lounge in Madison and uh, which wasn't true but there was this waitress there that I wanted to get with and, um, and, and I chose to spend Valentine's Day with, with this waitress and I came home and at like 12.30 at night or 1 o'clock in the morning and she was laying on the bathroom floor and there was blood on the floor um, and she was crying and she had miscarried mm. in the bathroom on Valentine's night as I was out cheating on her. I ended up you know, going, like I said, from six figures with a beautiful fiance and, and, and traveling to Europe to going back to my hometown of the Cronos and, and uh, as an alcoholic and an addict, homeless. I was homeless and, and I was drinking when I woke up. You know, I would start immediately start drinking and, um, and I was drinking the cheapest vodka I could find. And, uh, you know, because that was the cheapest liquor I could find with vodka. And so I just drink cheap vodka, man. And, um, living in a homeless shelter in La Crosse, I lost my career. I lost my career, I lost my house, I lost my fiance. I had tried everything, you know, everything the big book talks about, changing your liquors, changing the time of day you drink. I saw in the rooms people who, who told the same history that I had, but had a radically different present story. Right. So they were doing, they did all these different things and got these incredible results. That's how I came to believe that there was something to it because I thought working. So it was a logical thing to me. Today, I, I, I don't have six figures in my own house and, um, and, and multiple vehicles and, right. and a beautiful fiance. And I am by far happier than I've ever been, ever. I wouldn't trade a day of my old life for day of today. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. 
Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week we'll hear co-host extraordinaire Jason interview our good friend Peter S., who candidly shares his recovery story. Peter's called into the show a time or three and brings unbridled honesty and spiritual truth every time. Ultimately, his is a story of love, loss, and redemption. Peter's remarkably poignant story is rife with pain and anguish as a once promising career in the wine industry, complete with six figures, a beautiful fiance, and all the trappings was ultimately swallowed up by alcoholism and addiction, leaving him literally jobless, penniless, homeless, and alone. We all know better than to think that's where Peter's story ends, don't we? Fact is, in more than a few ways, it is truly where his recovery story begins. I'm telling you all, this story is candid, raw, and seriously compelling, and the wisdom and spiritual truth embodied herein is truly palpable. So listen up. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your co-host, Jason. I'm pumped to be here today uh, for episode 180 with my good friend, Peter Solberg. Peter, what's up, brother? How are you doing, Jason? Good to be here. Oh, dude, I'm doing really good, actually, for having a Friday off. You know, I'd I'd rather be earning some money, but uh, this is a awesome way to start a Friday. Yeah. You know what I mean? Awesome. Yeah, yes. yeah. So what's up, dude? We got we got to hear all about Peter here because you guys don't even know this dude. He's he's raw. He's real. He he doesn't shy away from telling you some of the real gritty details about his, um, you know, his journey as you will see. And and he's humble, man. He, he's he's open about his struggles too, which is refreshing because a lot of people get some time and they want to act like everything's all hunky dory and they don't want to expose that stuff. And Peter, you are not like that at all. And I love it about you because I'm not either. You know, I think we neglect ourselves if we don't share um, what's going on with us so people can be there for us. Right. Right, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the more I share the truth of my experience, the more I, I heal, you know? So, to me, it's all about being being real and, and, and talking about that gritty stuff because if I don't talk about that gritty stuff, I, I stay pretty sick, dude. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I mean, the, the mental health and, and like the, how they say, you know, the promises, they, they come true sometimes quickly, sometimes yeah. slowly. Well, I don't know. I think no matter how fast they come, for most people, it seems to be that it's like not fast enough for us. 
because we want it. We want it now, right? <laughs> is 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 ever is anything ever fast enough for us, dude? You know, I mean, like, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that that's why I use right because I wanted instant gratification. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. So I want what I want when I want it, and so it's never fast enough. But um, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, patience is one of those great virtues I, I've learned from from my recovery. You know, and and it takes patience to learn patience. And uh, that's the paradox, you know. So, right. but um, yeah, absolutely, man. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And I talk about the spiritual awakening often being of the educational variety. I think that's what it is, has been for me. There was no necessarily burning bush, but um, there's been a lot of burning patches of grass. And oh, yeah. A lot of, you know what I'm saying? A lot of like little mir- miracles have happened all over the place. Yeah. And like for me, most of them were super painful too, you know, like it's in the, it's in the hard shit where I get the most valuable lessons and, you know, hopefully they stick. (laughs) I mean, I might mess up, might mess up with them, but you know, at least that we get this self-awareness and shit where we can recognize it. Right. If, if, uh, if we're slipping, we can 10 step it or whatever, man, moving on, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, Bill W. said, uh, Bill W. said that pain is a touchstone of growth. And when I look back at my journey so far in recovery, um, those periods where I was going through the most pain also were those periods that I was growing the most spiritually. So, um, you know, I think when we're feeling really good and we're, we're flying really high, it's because we're reaping the results of the spiritual growth that we've gone through when we've been feeling low. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't agree with you more, man. So yeah. what was life like when you were a kid? Like where, how, did, how did it all begin for Peter? Well, so I grew up in a smaller, smaller town in, in, in Wisconsin, La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, about 50,000 people today, I guess. Um, in uh, back in 1971, and um, you know, I, I grew up in a two-parent family, at least initially. And my dad was uh, an alcoholic, and uh, my mom was was not an alcoholic, although she was codependent. She had some other issues going on. Um, and I was um, so I grew up in a, in a household where I was really, really close to my mom. Um, my mom was just this incredibly loving, nurturing person. Um, she uh, she just was one of these people who would do anything for anybody, you know. And 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 um, you know, and that's sort of the codependency part of it too. Well, she later in life became a big enabler to me, but you know, she was just extremely loving and giving. And um, and my dad was uh, was was remote. He was a real smart guy. He was a biology teacher, but. He was emotionally very remote and he didn't, what I came to find out later in life is he didn't know how to connect with me, even though he desperately loved me and wanted to. Um, And, you know, he was a practicing alcoholic. So um, he would get real volatile and, 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 and he never abused me physically or anything like that, but he would break stuff and scream and yell and verbally abuse and and all that kind of stuff. So my mom was, was my sanctuary and my one safe place. So, I never felt, you know, I, I, I realized in my childhood that, you know, I have these moments that I remember where I, I felt 
happy, like just these moments where I felt like comfortable in my skin and happy, but they were really few and far between. Um, most of my childhood, I felt like uh, when I would see other people meet people for the first time and just be able to have conversations and get along and hang out, like I never, I never understood how they did it. You know, I felt like they were all playing this game and they had the rules to it and I never got those rules. <laughs> yeah. um, you know what I mean? Like I, I just did not, and I wanted to play the game, you know, because, because, uh, I saw other people enjoying it, but I, I, I didn't have the rules. I didn't get it. Right. Um, so that was like, you know, that was sort of like my, my, my childhood. And, um, do you think that was like a trust thing or, or like a fear thing like that, that you, you wanted to connect, but you just couldn't you couldn't uh, overcome that uncomfortable feeling to allow yourself to really be open and connect? Yeah. I mean, I think fear and trust were a big part of it. Um, and, but I, I, I think, I, I think too, that, and I'll get more to that, to, to, to that later, my idea, but I mean, I just, I, I feel, and I've met a lot of alcoholics and addicts in my life. Also right. met a lot of normies. Uh, and and there seems to be this yearning to connect at a really fundamental level that is almost more profound in alcoholics and addicts than the average people that I've met. Right. Um, so, uh, but even at that surface level, at that small level, yeah, I mean, I was intimidated. I was scared. I I I I, I was afraid to to take that leap, and and. Um, and, and fear, fear dominated me, you know, even from a young age, you know, um, right. no question about it. Yeah. You know? And, uh, so, you know, and, and, and I allowed that to stop me from, from doing a lot of things or trying new things. You know, other kids were like joining sports or, you know, trying out for band or, or doing some stuff and trying out for theater or plays, stuff like that. And I, I just allowed my fear to prevent me from doing all that stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, I was just, I was very in my head and I love books and I mean, I had friends, but we were all friends who basically our, our, our common, the common denominator was we, we all felt alone. And so we came together and, yeah. and, 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 and sort of, we had this sort of sanctuary in our shared collective aloneness. Right. Um, but you know, so, you know, moving through, you know, my childhood, um, uh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you in my late, when I was about nine years old or so, I ended up developing this really this psychosis of, of attachment to my mom to where like she would leave the room and, and I would, I would be like, mom, mom, are you there? Mom, you know, like worried that she would leave. And if she would go to work or something like the babysitters had to physically hold me down, I'd be screaming in hysterical. I was vastly terrified that she wouldn't come back. Like separation anxiety. Abs, dude, to like, to the, to the largest order of magnitude, it was separation anxiety wow. and abandoned fear of abandonment, man. And, 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 uh, but when I got to be about 12 or 13, you know, like when I went to puberty and stuff, like that just went away. Like for whatever reason that, that went away. And, um, right. I still was attached to her, but not like, not like that. And it was about that time when I was I wonder, 13 I, years old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I wonder if that's like a form of anxiety. Cause my son, he's eight. 
and he's mm-hmm. he's not going through that specifically, but mm-hmm. he very much he's been obsessing about death. Mm-hmm. And he and he asks a lot of questions about death and he's very fearful of death yeah. for yeah. for himself and for anyone he cares about. Um he's fearful about what it's going to be like on the other side. more more than you know this you know the actual dying and but it's crazy because i mean he will out of the blue and so he's been to some some assessments and things and and they've given him they've recently put my son on some anxiety medication um Mm -hmm. because of that and it does seem to help i mean really i mean i don't think when because there's been a couple times i have him on the weekend you know and i have him twice a month so it's not like I'm super in the habit, you know, of giving him this stuff every day. So there's been a, a couple times where I forgot to give him a, his dose for the day. Yeah. And, and, you know, a couple, you know, times during the day, he might kind of bring up something like that or, or just get like a really overly emotional response to something he sees on the TV or whatever, sure. or out sure. when we're out and about. And it's like, he, you know, it's kind of, to me, it seems like kind of similar where it's just like, it's all in his head and it seemingly comes out of nowhere and it's very powerful. Like yeah. where, you know, I, I worry a little bit cause I'm, I'm a super sensitive person, dude. And I know right. like I see that in him, he, he takes things hard, you know what I mean? And, and even, well, yeah, I mean, just it, his perceived, it, you know, what he's perceiving in his mind. He sounds like a, what he sounds like is a really deep little guy, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I think he's, he's, I mean, really, he's exploring some fundamental existential issues at a pretty deep level, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and we, I mean, a lot of us just put our head in the sand to these issues, but, you know, right. dealing with the totality of death and, and is that annihilation or does something happen afterwards? I mean, that's, it's important stuff. Um, it is. And, you know, and, and so and like you said, you know, being sensitive is, is a double-edged sword because it, I mean, it allows us to to have this empathy and connect with people, but it also allows us to to take on too much, you know. But oh, we can drive I mean, I relate to what madness, I mean, right? <laughs> to, to create, yeah, man, absolute madness. And and as far as you know, kind of relating what I went through with your with your son, I mean, I I, I think it's it's similar. You know, I, I think it's abs- it was absolutely anxiety what I was dealing with. I mean, it was panic attack like full-blown panic attacks on a regular basis whenever she would leave yeah and um i mean i think back at him now and i've never experienced anything like that in, in my adulthood um and i've had panic attacks but nothing like that wow but yeah it was anxiety it was i was extremely sensitive as a kid man so sensitive and um so yeah i mean i i i relate to i, I relate to what that little guy's going through right yeah man yeah, it kind of so, reminded me of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it, you know. And, and when I got I was just a little older than eight or nine, you know, like I, when I got to be about 13, I was, uh, I was at a friend's house and his, his, his parents were gone. And um, I opened this closet door and, and there was all these liquor bottles there, like just lining the shelves and all these different colors. And like, I swear to God, the sun was coming through the window and hit these bottles and they all like seemed incandescent and illuminated, <laughs> you know, and all these colors were like, 
it was like this kaleidoscope of colors coming across. And I was just like, holy smokes, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was in the D&D at the time, you know, I was in the Dungeons and Dragons. And so yes. I was like, these are like potions, man, magical potions. And, and <laughs> uh, so I, I'm just, I, 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 I just took one of the bottles and opened it. He was standing there. He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think you should. And I'm like, well, it'll be fine. They won't know. And I just started pulling off these bottles. And the first, I think the first thing I drank was scotch. <laughs> and it, was just, it just tasted so awful, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and I just went from scotch to like creme de menthe to like schnapps to like vodka. I mean, it was just awful. And, uh, but I grabbed like four or five different, completely different liquors. And suddenly God. it hit me like a freight train. It that sounds like, absolutely horrible, dude. <laughs> well, it does. And, it, and, it, and for any normal person, it would have been a horrific experience. And they probably wouldn't have even looked at liquor again until they were 21. Uh, um, but I wasn't at that moment. I found out I wasn't a normal person because, uh, after drinking like four or five hits off the bottle, it, it was like, I had been surrounded by heavy machinery my whole life. Yeah. And it just went silent. And I felt this complete and total sense of peace and calm come upon me. And for the first moment in my life, for a sustained period of time, I was feeling comfortable in my skin. And, yeah, it sounds um, nice. <laughs> oh, dude. It, like, I, you know, it, and I'm not exaggerating at all and, and when I tell you how it felt, because it wasn't until that moment that I realized how fucked up I was. Right. How, how messed up I had felt, you know, because... It was for the first time in my life I felt integrated and part of of this world. I felt like I understood my place. I mean, right. I felt like I had arrived, and I know but now had, what happened. You had something to contrast your normal state of being to as well, because you're right. now now you're experiencing something completely different that feels peaceful, and you're like precisely wow, you know, like. It's like what I always tell people when I got into recovery, dude, and I started working these steps and I started to really change deeply. I, I was like seeing things in my life, just weird, random areas of my life greatly improved where I was like, this is awesome. Awesome. You know, and I didn't even know they needed improvement. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. sometimes you can't even uh, be aware of that until you experience uh, something else, you know, and then you're like, wow, this is way better. And, you know, then it's something that you want to look at further, you know, to like keep that going. But yeah, dude, I, I, I agree, man. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And and I think, I mean, I think to a large extent, you know, us human beings are built in a certain way that our, our capacity to feel joy is, is, is mirrored by our capacity to feel horror. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, basically if we have this huge capacity to feel in general, um, then we're, we'll, we'll, we'll experience those limits, but you're right with the contrast because, um, feeling normal to me felt like ecstasy. Um, just not feeling anxious and not feeling full of fear right. for a moment was like being high, you know? So, and, um, and yeah, man. So it was, it, and I remember thinking to myself, I will never 
let this go. <laughs> yeah, this is it. You know, <laughs> this is it. I will yeah. never let booze go. I mean, this is, this is the answer. Right. And, and, you know, and I knew my dad drank beer and I knew that it caused him to act like an asshole a lot sometimes and, and all that stuff. And I said, I wouldn't be that person. But I also was thinking to myself, well, this is not how it's affecting me right now. Right. This is making me a better person. I, I'm filled with love and joy for humankind right now. Not yep, anger this is, and bitterness. I'm different. And, and really, yeah. I, when I was younger, I was the same way where I would be like, that person's not, but I would be like, that person's not acting that way because they're wasted. They're just, yeah. booze is just making them show their true colors. You know, like I always right. believed that about people. Like, yep. because I thought, I thought that so often you see people using it as an excuse for everything, you know, like, Oh, I was drunk. That's why I cheated right. on you. Or that's why I punched you in the face or whatever. Yep. And it's like, yep. dude, I would, I would just think that was all bullshit. Um, right. It wasn't until years later when I started to black out and do really crazy shit and people would tell me and I'd literally be plugging my ears and going, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Like I, I dreaded hearing the stories that people would want to tell me about what oh, I right. did the night before, you know, cause I'd be like, shut totally. up. Cause if I yep. didn't hear it, then I, then it didn't happen, you know, or at least in right. my heart, I could pretend that everything was fine. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you had the comfort of delusion, you know, you didn't even know, but once you know, it's like painful, man. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So, you know, and, and, and I know now what happened, you know, at that moment when I first drank, it was what it really was, was a false spiritual awakening. Right. Um, it, and, and what it, what it really was, was an ego awakening. Um, my ego suddenly just exploded. And, and it, it felt in, in all of its manifestations, much like you hear people describe spiritual awakenings. And if you've ever read Varieties of Religious Experience um, by, uh, by um, William Blake, is that it? William Blake? What's his name? Anyways, uh, the big book talks about it, Varieties of uh, Religious Experience. I can't remember the author right now for some strange reason, but uh, he talks about all these different people and, and throughout history who've had spiritual awakenings and stuff. And, and the, the common themes are this sense of absolute connection, uh, the sense of feeling they understand one's place in the universe, this sense of connectivity with all life. You know, all these things are common. And, uh, and, and that's what I felt, man. And, and um, I, 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 had, I just felt like I'd arrived at that moment. Right. And, and I remember me and him, we just went on a walk and, and it was just like the most deliriously wonderful experience ever. Like all the colors seemed more vivid. <laughs> Everything seemed more clear, you know, and, 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 yeah. and I just felt this warmth towards strangers walking by and, and, uh, you know, so that set me up, man, that set me up, uh, to, to chase this thing for a good part of my life. Right. Yeah, yeah, I I I love the way you describe that. Like, like not only with the colors thing, because you hear a lot of people say that, but and mm-hmm. and I and I can relate to that as well. But like when you were yeah. talking about like walking around and feeling this warmth for for like people in the general public, like just people you see yeah. walking around, and you just feel like, like you know, like 
really joyful and and like you're exuding that right like towards right. others and smiles and and hey how's it going beautiful day you know and <laughs> yep that's yep. so that's so true like oh, i've been there I've been there so many times and i it's funny yeah. though like to me because that's not the stuff that i guess i think about usually when i think back um mm-hmm. I, I don't think about that, that positive stuff that much every once in a while i guess i do and i but i just now i think with all the recovery stuff embedded in my head and relapse prevention stuff and all the training that I've done that yeah I, I immediately think euphoric recall it'll get you every time I'm like hell no sure. that's, then I'm stomping the ground going not today Satan <laughs> <laughs> right right well you know and there's something to what you're saying about euphoric recall recall euphoric recall we got to we have to be aware of that but you know what Here's the thing, and I, and I, you know, I've been to a lot of meetings and a lot of seminars and a lot of, you know, whatever about recovery and dealing with recovery. And a lot of people out there don't want to get real with how good it fucking felt. Okay. But they don't want to, they don't want to talk about, about, you know, how, how it really was when they started and how good it really was for a long time. They just want to demonize it. You know, alcohol was horrible, destroyed my life. It was all awful. It was all, you know, and the thing is, at least my experience and most people I know, that's not the case for, for many years. It worked. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it worked. And, and, um, you know, and I, I ended up getting a, a, a successful career and, and I made six figures for a while. I had a house and, you know, and, 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 and it allowed me to, to do a lot of things and it, it worked until it stopped working. But, Right. I don't think we can deal with any serious issue in life unless we look at it from every angle completely honestly. And that means we need to talk about how it worked and where it was good too. Right. Um, and, and when we tell our stories, you know, because that's, that's how we're going to relate with people because, um, you know, it's, it's common for people for this to work for people or else we wouldn't be alcoholics and addicts. Right. If it right. didn't really do, if it really didn't do what we needed to have done for us, Right for 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 a good period of time, we wouldn't chase it to the gates of hell. I don't know, man. I I think, I mean, I think most people will say that it was their solution. You know, kind of like yeah. you said, until it stopped working. But I also think mm-hmm. that there's this trend or or this common um, belief out there that when you when you get asked to speak at a meeting, right, that yeah. like you only want to say enough to qualify yourself, but you don't want to get yeah. too deep into the, into the war story shit. And right, it's like, right. it's like this. I, and I don't necessarily agree with that either. Cause I mean, it is what it is, dude. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, if I'm getting to know a person, there's random times all the time when I feel like compelled to tell them about something that happened in my past. And yeah. And you know, I'm like a storyteller. So I'll get all into yeah. the story. It, my, like my ex-wife, dude, she used to hate it when I would talk, bring up anything about like when I was shooting up and stuff. Cause sure. I think, I think she thought I missed it or something because when I'm telling the story, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like re-experiencing that event, <laughs> but, yeah. but it was like, I'd always tell her like, no, I just get, fired up i guess you know i'm a passionate person and i'm like that with anything i could be fucking training a new cook at the restaurant when i used to run restaurants and i'd be getting pumped about some 
menu item that I made up or something and showing them that, you know, uh, it's sure. no, di- no different than when I'm talking about this crazy time when I almost died of an overdose, but then I was scared shitless. And then I realized I was coming back and all of a sudden it went from this terrifying experience to being like awesome, you know? And I, right. I'm like, I don't know, man. I just feel like people are, afraid maybe to go there or maybe they're afraid of what other people are going to think if they if they get too into it you know um well i agree you know and i mean i don't at the end of the day i feel like if i'm being authentic to the best of my ability i don't care what people think amen Um, you know i'm I'm just gonna let god sort all of that out because if i'm if i'm really shooting from the hip and i'm and i'm telling my story as truthfully as i feel like i can then the rest I leave up to God. But I do think it's important to have some balance. You know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. When I, when I say telling the truth from every angle, I, I don't mean talking about war stories and glorifying it. Right. But I'm, I'm, I, I, do, I do mean recounting that for many, many years, I was having fun doing this. Yep. Um, and it, it would be easy for me to, to downplay that and say that, but then I'm not going to connect with those young people that are in the room who yeah. are also having fun with it. You know what I mean? Because well, they're they still feeling the pull, right? They're, yeah. They're still feeling the pull. And so they, they need to hear that how good it can be. And, and again, just like we talked about earlier, if they don't hear me talk, talk about how good it was, they won't appreciate me when I talk about how horrible it got. Damn right. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, only, it's only when we fully appreciate the whole thing as it is that we can see it, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, so, yeah, but, and, and, you know, I was off to the races, you know, once, once I first drank and, once and you I had not, the ma- I magic went, potions, <laughs> once I, once I drank the magical potions, and I immediately, <laughs> I immediately went up 10 levels and became a magic user and you know, whatever. Yes. Um, no, but, <laughs> your, your hit point status, your attack oh, God. went up three points. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my AC and hit points went through the roof, dude. I, I love that shit. I used to also play yeah. D&D. Guilty. Oh, yeah, dude. I love <laughs> D&D. Uh, anyways, so, so I, I, uh, I didn't immediately become an everyday drinker or anything close to that, but I, I, I did continue to drink, and, and, and it would be like usually on weekends, and I, I found some friends who drank and, and um, hung out with some kind of older kids who were punks, and, and they knew a guy who was a carryout, and, and, and so he would hook us up. and. Um, and I just remember, you know, it was just like this. Every time I drank, it was like I was this funny guy that was just cracking jokes with people and connecting with people. And everyone, I just remember people saying, it's like, man, it's like I never knew you before. You're, you know, so I kept getting this reinforcement that like, this is making you better. You are a better person. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because, and, and, uh, so it was all I needed, you know, and, yep. um, and then, so going into my uh, teen years, you know, in, in my later teens, and then I, I just, I kept doing it, and I, you know, we'd go to parties, and, and I, I remember that I did know, I didn't think I had a problem for a long time, but I did know that I drank different than other people, and I did know that I, I wanted to not let them know how much I drank, okay, <laughs> yeah. so that... So you, you got a pregame, pregame before yeah. you meet the friends, and yeah. then you go out for a couple drinks for that little pregame. <laughs> you got it. You I nailed know it. That's exactly right. I mean, I would do. I would drink. You know, like I would get to a party or whatever, and in 
yard behind there, but like behind a garage or something, I would down a bottle of MD 2020. Oh, so that, so that I could get right. That was my shit back in the day. Yeah. Oh man. MD 2020 plum in the night train. It was like a couple bucks a bottle and that would just get you tossed up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was a no brainer. And, uh, so, so that right away, you know, like I'm not drinking, that's not normal at all. And also like a regular part of my night partying was, was throwing up. Like oh. I would, I would drink and drink and drink and drink to a point where my body literally just couldn't hold it in anymore. And I would just go outside and, and it wasn't like a big deal. I would go outside and puke and, and come back in and continue drinking. And puke and ready. Couple, yeah, man. That's and, what you and there's say. a couple. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, that's it. And I had a couple friends who were like that, but most of the people I met with weren't like that. Right. You know, um, we would so, have been great friends, Peter. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And neither, neither of us may be here right now, but no, yeah. dude, <laughs> I mean, by the grace of God, there go I, cause I, they, right. yeah, I don't even know what I'm doing here, bro. I don't know how many people oh, I, I have lost. Um, and I wouldn't even necessarily say lost to this disease because mm-hmm. they weren't really that hardcore, but they, mm-hmm. you know, got in a fatal car crash or they, you know, accidentally overdosed and they, you know, dabbled or, or, you know, moderately used it best and they aren't here anymore. So like, what am I doing? Grace of God. Right. Grace of God. I, I'm the same. I feel the same way as you. I have no more right to be here than so many people that I knew I have no, I have done no more work. I didn't, you know, none of that. It's just in many ways, it's just dumb luck and the grace of God that I'm here. But right. what's key is that I realize that today. Amen. We're going to be covering a, or doing a topic episode sometime soon when we're, when we get all caught up with these interviews, we've gotten kind of swamped with interviews lately, but um, yeah. the next, the next topic is going to be survivor guilt. Around, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. going to be heavy. <laughs> yeah, no question. <clears throat> Talking about some, no I know I'll, I I got lots of friends that I can be bringing up for that and talking about the, what happened with them. And it's it is a yeah. thing, you know. I mean, especially in the beginning, before you find your worth, right? Like it's um, it's hard to feel good about your recovery or or the fact that you survived. Um, mm-hmm at first, you know, and you, you almost wish you could just trade places with certain people because you, you, you have hope for that person, right? You, or you had hope, right. you, you really saw right. a lot of potential in them and you don't see potential right. in yourself or have hope for yourself. Then right. It's like, no, I, 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 it's a, it's a real thing. And I think that, you know, ultimately for me, it, it just, I just came to a point where I'm like, well, you know, as to why, I'm hearing some people aren't. That's academic. What I do know is that I have a responsibility because I am here. <laughs> I know, that's it. all I know. That's all I know for sure is that I, regardless of how or why, let's just deal with the fact that I am now today responsible to do everything in my power to stay sober and to help anybody that's out there that wants to be sober to achieve that. Right. You know, so that's what it comes down to. But but yeah, dude, it's, it's tough stuff. And, you know, you talk about how you can see that potential in other people. And, 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 and you know, I, always, I often think to myself that if we, if we, on a regular basis, talk to ourselves, even the way that we would talk to a stranger, 
and we would give ourselves the same advice that we would even give a stranger, honestly, we would be remarkable creatures that would be transcending the mundane every single day. Right, dude. <laughs> but so but, true. So true. But here's like the, I give the know, best advice, but I didn't take it. Right. <laughs> but but and, and the thing is that advice you give is true. The advice you give to your friends, what the stuff that you share from your heart to strangers that are going through a struggle is true. Yet if we're going through that same exact struggle, our internal narrative will be telling us things like we're worthless, we can't do it, we don't have a chance. And all this garbage, and it's not true. Right. You know, and, you touched and, and, on that earlier too, where you, you know, talked about your your fear and anxiety, and that you know mm-hmm. people were trying out for sports and doing all these things, but they, ne- they and you you wanted to do those things, but you just never tried. And it's like, right. uh, I wish I could remember who who this was, but this is a quote that says, "The only way to guarantee failure is if you don't try." Right. Maybe it's Benjamin Franklin or it was somebody. <laughs> no, it's 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 a great quote. It's and it's it's true, you know, and so many people could have said that, you know, that 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 um but it's 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 absolutely true. And and I mean my whole thing today is I know I'm gonna fail, right? So like that's part of life, that's part of this this grand experiment of life. That we we're going through this process and my whole thing is I'm gonna try to fail better. Yeah. You like know, fall um, forward, not backward, right? Right, yeah. right. You know, yeah. so, um, but yeah, so fear and, and fear was a corrosive element in my life. And, and, you know, getting into my late teens and stuff, drinking took that away because I felt no fear when I drank. Right. None. All these insecurities, all this intimidation, all of it was gone instantly. So, you know, I think while, while other people who were non-alcoholics and not addicts, non-addicts, they would go through adversity in life in their teens and they would come to a difficult situation and they would have to go through it. They would have to process it. And, and as a result of doing that, they grew as people. Right. And they matured. Well, as an addict and an alcoholic, every time I came to adversity, I put something on it. So <laughs> I didn't go through it. I didn't process it. And I didn't right. grow. Well said, so my I, friend. <laughs> so when I finally got sober, I, I was emotionally, mentally where I was when I started doing that. Yep. I yeah. think I was 13. Right? I, <laughs> I was a 13-year-old, 36-year-old. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, uh, but, you know, I, I moved, uh, I left lacrosse. I moved to Madison when I was like 21. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it was a bigger city and it was a cool city and it was a party city. And, um, and I, I, I got into the bar scene there and, um, I started working at Whole Foods and, uh, started working there in a produce department and, and, and I really liked it and I, and I liked the people I worked with and, and, but I was a partier, man, going to bars every night and closing them down and, 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 you know. And I felt like I was just living life to its fullest. And, and, and I always, I always wanted to do things to the extreme, you know, like I wasn't drinking to, to, to escape at that time. I was drinking because I felt like I was connecting more deeply. I really did. Um, and that, and, and I, and I, and I celebrated all these artists and writers and musicians who are alcoholics and addicts. And I felt like they understood that this is what you did to fully 
suck the essence out of life, man. You went to extremes. You took drugs. You took alcohol. So make everything more intense. And uh, yeah, you haven't, you know, unless you haven't, <laughs> yeah, you know. And it's it's all this this nonsense that this 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 narrative that we buy into. The and and the big book talks about this, right? You know, like. Bill W. is talking about telling his wife that all the greatest artists and thinkers had their great thoughts and moments of genius when they were drunk. I mean, this is old stuff, but I just adopted that narrative to modern times and, and found my modern scientists and philosophers to worship. And, well, I think, um, I think that's the kind of thing that happens at, you know, at points for, for any of us. And that like you, you even kind of expressed it earlier. It was, um, you know, like things would happen that would further prove to you that this is making you a better person, right? Like, right. like it was very, like certain things that would go down would end up being an encouragement to you and you would attribute it to the chemical that you're, you know, taking. So you would think, right. man, that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't, you know, on meth right now or drunk or whatever. Absolutely. Every time, man, every, every time it happened, we kept powerfully associating whatever success or insight or whatever we had with the fact that we were using that connection was constantly made. Yeah. And, um, so, and we know just a little bit about brain chemistry, you know, these are neural pathways that are forged in our brain. So every time we do this and we, we see this result happen, that, neural pathway becomes bigger and wider and pretty soon it's a super highway. And, right. and so that's, that's, that's our go-to. That's the easier, softer way. And, yeah, and you and get into the, mem the memory spikes, right? And there's for, right. for every one like traumatic experience or, or very painful or, you know, whatever experience yeah. that you had, there's like a umpteen, thousand hundreds of other memory spikes that are positively associated so even though a person could have suffered amazingly horrible consequences as a result of their addiction throughout the course of their life numerous times over and over again and everybody else sees this as a very clear pattern of you know activity or whatever and yeah. but to the addict it those like no consequence is great enough, right? To make us stop because right. we have right. a million other positive, you know, and we're always chasing those. We're, ch we're chasing them positive ones instead of um, being honest with ourselves about the reality of the power of those negative ones. It's crazy. Oh yeah. You, you, you said it perfectly. I mean, that's, and that's sort of like the nature of our disease, right? It's like, in, in spite of all this pain and suffering, there are no consequences ultimately that will, that will make us stop. And, um, and that's, you know, that's the baffling and coming impossible thing about this disease is, is that, you know, most people, normal people, you know, the first couple of times they drink to excess, you know, they get sick, they get a hangover and they're like, I'm good, you know, and then, you know, they don't, they might not look at it for years and then they just drink normally for the rest of their lives and whatever. That's sort of a normal reaction to taking a poison into your body, right? But for us, you know, like we get up, we have a hangover and we feel like shit and we're thrown up and we're like, dude, I cannot wait to do that again. You know, yeah. and, um, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's just how we're built. And, um, you know, and when I, 
I got to Madison and I was partying and going out to bars and going to shows and, and, you know, hanging out with musicians who, you know, got, had access to any kind of drug I wanted. And, and, um, but I started, you know, like getting interested in, in wine. Okay. And like, and, and not mad dog 2020, but like, you know, like the, the, the good stuff. And, and I, you know, cause I started really getting into like, cooking and I started to become kind of a foodie and, and, and hung out with some foodies. And, and, and so I started getting introduced to pairing wine with different foods and, and I just loved it, man. And, and like you talked about earlier about being passionate about stuff and how, you know, like if you're a passionate person, you know, it, it, you can just be passionate about recalling euphoric experiences, getting high or, or cooking or whatever. Right. Um, but if you're into something, you know, and if I'm, you know what? If I come up to somebody who's passionate about anything, I'm going to be engaged. Like right. I'm going to be attentive. I don't care if it's about knitting or tractor tires or whatever. If you're passionate about it and, and you're sharing your passion, like I'm engaged, like I'm into that. I love that about human beings. You know, that to me is a celebration of the spirit when we allow ourselves to feel passionate about things. Right. And, um, and I got connected with some people who were passionate about food and wine, man. And, and that translated to me and I, and I started feeling that. So I, like anything that I was really interested in, I threw myself into it. And I read tons of books about wine and, and I, I did my homework, which meant drinking a lot of it. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and I was, I, I had a natural aptitude. I had a good palate. Like I was really good at discerning, the different flavors and characteristics of wine. And I mean, it got to the point where you, I could try wines blind and tell you what the varietal was and probably, probably what part of the world it was from, you know, whether it was new world like us or like whether it was from Spain or Argentina. Um, I mean, it, it was crazy, you know, and, wow. and, and they hired a, they were hiring somebody to run the specialty department at Whole Foods and the specialty department buys all the cheese and coffee, but also the beer and the wine. And so I applied and got the job and, and then I, I got a chance to, you know, vendors would come in and bring samples of different beers and wines. And, um, I just really threw myself into it. And, uh, there was this guy that was a, a distributor, a wine distributor who was new in town and he just handled small production wines from around the world. Really, really good stuff. Uh, and, but he was his, he was like in his mid fifties and he was doing it all himself. He was doing all the deliveries and the marketing and, and everything. And when he would come in, he would just look so exhausted. And I said to him, I said, Mark, I'm like, you're going to have to hire somebody pretty soon to help you. And I said, when you do, please talk to me first, you know, and it was pretty ballsy for me to do that. You know, I mean, I was like <laughs> right. just throwing myself out there. I'd never been in sales or, or anything. But a couple months later, he, he asked me if I'd like to interview, and I did. And, and that's how I got into the wine business, uh, importing and, and, and sales. And, um, and I was with that company, and I, was, I found out, I come to find out that I was really, really good at it. I was really good at sales, and I loved the product, and I believed in the product. So... Um, and what I think about sales is really you're not selling the product so much as you're selling your confidence. Right. Um, and, and the product is sort of the metaphor, but there are people are buying your confidence in that thing because what people lack in this world more than anything seemingly is 
confidence and self-assuredness. So or, or you can passion, sell that, you know, like passion, your passion and passion is confident. You know, that's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's off authentic stuff. So then I was, I was into this. So, um, you know, I did that for a total of nine years and, um, the company exploded and, um, it, it sent me, uh, to, to France multiple times. They sent me to Germany multiple times, to Spain, to Italy. I got to go meet the actual winemakers, um, that produced the, the wine that we were selling. And, uh, and they treated us like royalty, right? Because we're their meal ticket. We're, we're the ones who are representing their product in the U.S. You know, we're, we're, we're putting food on their table and we're sending their kids to college and all that stuff. So. Right. I mean, they would like lay out this incredible food and, and, and take you on tours of the vineyards and, and dude, it was a wonderful life. I was a high school dropout right. um, in my 20s, <laughs> making good money, bought my own house and being sent to Europe on my company's dime on a regular basis. Right. And I thought I'd arrived. It sounds awesome. You know? does <laughs> Dude, it, 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 and it does and it was you know um but i i started to you know i had i had a, a great girlfriend um and you know i i met her through whole foods and and she was this just beautiful blonde haired blue eyed full of sunshine wonderful woman and um and usually not the kind of girl i usually liked you know i i was I was like into the like dark haired kind of goth, depressed, crazy mm-hmm. chicks. <laughs> and, and this, this woman was just like sunshine and light and, and stuff that I wouldn't normally you know, be into. But I, I had this feeling that, you know, I knew I was drinking too much and I knew it was causing me to, to, to my behavior started changing. I started getting, I'd always been kind of sarcastic and, and snarky, but I started getting mean spirited right. and, and, um, cruel sometimes when I drank, I would, uh, I called it going to the dark side right. and I didn't know I'd gone to the dark side until the next day when I thought back to what I would said, but I was out to hurt people. I, I really wanted to bring people down and, and I thought that she was a good woman who would cure me of my wicked ways. Right. And, um, like, you know, like an old country song or something, you know? And, and, and so for whatever reason, she was, she was into me and, and we, we started dating and, and uh, fell madly, madly in love. And, um, and she stuck with me through for many years and bought a house together and um, we were engaged, but I was, um, I was, I was cheating on her regularly. And, um, you know, I just remember like I didn't, I would feel some guilt sometimes when I was, when I was sober, you know, but like at the time there was no idea of not thinking about just gratifying myself. You know, it was sort of like if I had an opportunity, you know, I was just going to take it. And, um, and, and, and somehow on some deep level, it felt justified, you know, like, like I deserved it. And, um, or like if you were on a business trip, you'd be like, well, I'm just doing my job, you know? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, I'm just doing my job or, or, you know, it's, it's like, I, I have these, these large appetites because I'm in this incredible person. So 
I have to satisfy him. And and the little (laughs) people wouldn't understand and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. (laughs) The self-absorbed, selfish, self-centered, grandiose, absolute nonsense. Narcissism. And um, narcissism, man. And and all the hallmarks of our disease. It's funny um, how you went from this ball of insecure fear to a narcissistic kind of personality really right well i went from like the big book talks about you know i was at a place of of fear and and kind of self-loathing and all that stuff that's really pride in reverse right and then i and then i went to full-on pride forward so you flipped the um, switch with alcohol i flipped the switch with alcohol but they were both both states were appealing to my ego for satisfaction. Oh, yeah. It is weird, yeah. dude. That was one of the hardest pills for me to swallow early in my recovery. When somebody yeah. told me that self-loathing is an extreme version of self-centeredness, I was like, what? Yeah. Because I don't know, I know how many years I spent just grinding and beating myself down because I wasn't in my kids' lives. And, and every time yeah. I would work up the courage to try to reach out to their mom, um, it would turn into an argument and I would get really defensive and it would be like a mud throwing match. You know, she would be saying the right. shit I did and then I'd be calling her out on her shit. And then she'd get really, really pissed and defensive and, and upset right. because I'm bringing up stuff that she's probably bringing out a lot of shame out of her yet here she's right. been raising these kids and I haven't been in the fucking picture, you know, and I, I did that. Mm. I did that. And I did that. And I, I did not want to live anymore. You know, it just, it all just keeps growing. and It, it perpetuates itself. But to find out that that was ego, I couldn't fucking I know, believe dude. it. I was like, dude, what? that was a huge, I said, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like I'm a piece of shit and the world is, you know, against me. And, and it, it feels like I'm a victim, you know? And they're like, yeah, because be you being a victim allows your ego to stay intact instead of you realizing that you fucking did this to yourself. You know And I'm like? Dude, my head almost exploded, man. Dude, that was a huge thing for me too. Uh, I mean, an amazing revelation because, I mean, really what it comes down to is it's, the, you know, self-indulgence, right? And, and what is the self really? But the self is the ego, okay? Right. So self-indulgence can be uh, hating myself and loathing myself just as much as it can be thinking I'm, I'm terminally unique and I'm better than anybody. Right. I'm still, in, I'm still indulging myself or my ego, and that is my problem. Okay? Or it's like all-encompassing, right? Like it's all, it's all you, it's, it's it's all all you can see. We're all in. Yeah, yeah, we're either we're either the we're either the, the the smartest guy in the room and and bulletproof and and ten feet tall, and we're just complete piece of shit that that shouldn't even exist. Right. And oftentimes that person within the same five minutes. That black and white thinking. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So um, and so I was starting to do stuff like that, and 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 keep me on a timeline here, dude. If I if I need to move forward or whatever, but um, oh, you're good. Okay, good. So anyways, but like, yeah, so like, and I was, you know, so I was, I was being promiscuous and, and, and doing that stuff. And, and she was this wonderful, loyal person. Um, and I was finding excuses to not be home and, and, and to, to cause I, I wanted to go out to bars and I'd always tell her I was working or doing wine tastings or whatever. And I realized it was because I wasn't 
emotionally available. And I wasn't, I didn't want to be, it took too much work to be intimate. I mean, because to be in a real healthy, intimate relationship, you have to be vulnerable. Mm. You have to be authentic. You have to put your, 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 you have to put your chips in the middle of the table. And I, I didn't want to do that at all. Hell no. Um, Isn't it, it funny how you, you enjoy yeah. these things, right? That you're doing. Yeah. And yet when it right. comes to that and having that dynamic in this relationship, which you really do care about and you hold it dear, but you, yep. the fear of what that's going to do to the relationship. You, mm-hmm. so it's funny because on some fundamental level, we know, we know that it's wrong, right? And mm-hmm. we know that it's bad because if right. we didn't, then we wouldn't know that we best not to say nothing. But instead mm-hmm. of going, wow, that's bad. I should like just stop doing, <laughs> you know, fucking, right. we're right. just like, no, I'm just, I just, all I have to do is not say nothing. And then I can keep doing what I'm doing and just keep everything's hunky dory. No, dude. Right. Problems don't just go away, man. Yeah, they don't, man. They, they will don't, bubble man. up and to the surface. They will. They will manifest themselves uh, in in various ways, and uh, and it, and it just gets ugly. And and this is what happens when we try to play God, right? I mean, right. this is what happens when 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 I try to be my own higher power, and I pray to my ego on a regular basis. Um, this is what happens. And and uh, there was a night. Um, and, and so my drinking was just progressing. And I was, you know, I remember telling my, I started kind of realizing that I was drinking earlier and earlier in the day, right? And so, and I kept setting times of the day that I wouldn't drink before and then bringing that back on the clock <laughs> a little bit <laughs> as time went on. You know what I mean? And just sort of nickel and diamond it until, you know, it, I, I was starting to drink pretty early. and. Um, and just drink all day and valentine's day i forget what year it was but it was valentine's day and um and i was out at the, my girl my my fiance was pregnant and she was at home and i told her that i was gonna cook dinner for her and i told her that i had the, uh at the last second i had this opportunity to do this wine tasting at this new like cocktail lounge in madison and uh which wasn't true but there was this waitress there that I wanted to get with. And, um, and, and I chose to spend Valentine's day with, with this waitress. And I came home and at like 1230 at night at one o'clock in the morning. And she was laying on the bathroom floor and there was blood on the floor. Um, and she was crying and she had miscarried Mm. in the bathroom on Valentine's night as I was out cheating on her. Wow. And somehow like the totality of that, I, I, I understood it, but I, I, I didn't have the normal emotional response that a person should. And, and I, I just compartmentalized it. And, and um, you know, eventually within about a year and a half of that, I went from making six figures and owning my house and a couple of cars and, and toys and stuff like that to um, through some illegal activity and evading taxes and, and also doing a lot of cocaine on top of the drinking. I lost her because she found out that I was cheating on her and um, I lost the house. I lost my job and my career 
and th- that's when I, I really started to absolutely spiral and then I ended up losing my house and, and, and I ended up, you know, going, like I said, from six figures with a beautiful fiance and, and, and traveling to Europe to going back to my hometown of La Cronos and, and, uh, as an alcoholic and an addict, homeless, I was homeless and, and I was drinking when I woke up, you know, I would start immediately start drinking and, um, and I was drinking the cheapest vodka I could find. And, uh, you know, cause that was the cheapest liquor I could find was vodka. And so I just drink cheap vodka, man. And, um, living in a homeless shelter in La Crosse, I lost my career. I lost my career. I lost my house. I lost my fiance. Um, in, you know, I, I went back to La Crosse. Uh, my dad was, was sick and, and he was, uh, prescribed Vicodin. And, and uh and for a while and then Percocet and I was sneaking into his house and stealing his pain medication. I was um I was insane and uh in the absolute grips of my disease and my family knew um that I couldn't be trusted and, and they they shut off contact with me and so I was homeless in my town and uh and then um one day I was uh I was really drunk and um, had taken a fair amount of ketamine mm. and also drank uh, like two bottles of Robitussin Jeez. and decided to go to Walmart um, <laughs> in La Crosse. And so, and, and I, I do not remember any of this, <laughs> but I did, I did see the tape later. Nice. So I walk into Walmart and I, um, I go to the men's clothing department and I drop trial and I put on a new pair of shorts. <laughs> I take off my shirt and put on a new shirt and I walk over to the liquor department because in La Crosse in Wisconsin, our Walmarts have liquor departments, damn it. Right. Um, and, and started just drinking liquor off the shelf, just unscrewing bottles and drinking it um and walking through the store and um while i was walking through the store (laughs) i slapped two women in the ass (laughs) and i don't uh, know why i laugh at that but that's yeah i mean it's 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 horrible it's a horrible i mean i at the time i mean i don't even know what i was thinking like i'm I'm frank sinatra in a casino in the 40s or some shit you know like what i'm thinking but but, um, you know, this is obviously so far away from anything I would normally do, but I, I, well, I would I think, by, I would think that Sinatra had more class than that. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Sinatra probably did have a lot more class than that. In fact, I'll just go out, I'll go on a limb and say he definitely had more class. Yeah, for sure. But, that dude's class. But yeah, yeah. But whatever, I, I thought I was, uh, I thought I was a scumbag who could just do that. I don't know what I thought, but as I walked by, Two women, you can see my hand go out and just smack them. And wow. so, you know, and then I, 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 you can see me walking and I think I'm just going to like walk right out of this. The cops are there waiting. I mean, like <laughs> they've just been like watching the film, counting my crimes, you know, and, and, wow. and, and, and so they, uh, I'm arrested, so, but I woke up in a jail cell <laughs> with absolutely zero idea of how I got there. Wow. So 
and, and, and my earliest recollection was the morning before when I started drinking and then I couldn't remember. I think I remembered taking ketamine, right? some ketamine taps, but I don't remember anything after that. So did I kill somebody? I mean, what? I don't know. And, and, and I'm sitting there for a while before, uh, one of the deaths comes and, and tells me, you know, what's going on. And so, um, you know, I was charged with, uh, of kind of the lowest grade misdemeanor assault that you can get. But still, you know, my, my, I was in the paper, uh, as I was in jail, you know, one of the guys, started, a couple of guys are laughing and looking at me and I'm like, what? And he brings the paper over to me and there I am on the second page. Oh, the whole story of me going through in my hometown, of me uh, walking through the apart. So, you know, and, uh, wow. And this is what, this is what I've become. You know, this is what I had become. And like a laughing stock, weird hobo guy. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's so messed up. Yeah. Uh, I'd become that guy. I had become that guy. And you were like yeah. high class, like, you know, what you would think upper echelon well, yeah. type person. I no, I mean, but you really were yeah. like, yeah. you know, international travel and mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. everything a man could yeah. ever want. And you squandered yeah. all of it. And now you're. Yeah destitute and in a blackout probably manic and just doing really weird shit (laughs) (laughs) doing super weird shit and uh yeah man you ever watch any of rob zombies movies you know i I think i may have seen one of them when right baby firefly in uh the devil's rejects she says you want to get fucked up and do some fucked up shit? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It's just every time I hear a story like that, and I just think of her saying that. And right. Yeah, that, that that voice was in my head at some point, and I said, yes. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> I guess I do. And that was the result. So I'm all in. You know, I, 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 I was really lucky in that, um, I mean, first of all, I'll just be straight. I, I, I'm really lucky that I'm a white male and that as a white male, I have a certain privilege in the justice system that a lot of people aren't afforded. A. Right. B. I'll also say that um, the judge knew me personally. I was uh, really good friends with her son-in-law and she also knew my aunt. Um, so she knew who I used to be. She knew right. who I really was ultimately. I mean, you know what I mean? She, she knew that this in no way represented me. So, um, that that's this you know, was very out of the ordinary, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, I had no real criminal records and you know disorderly conduct and shit like that, but nothing on my record. So, right. uh, basically, I got um, she. I had to pay a fine and stuff like that, and and um, she said as long as I went to treatment, uh, that I would you know be okay. And so I went to. That's how I came to Minnesota. That's how I came to Minneapolis, and that was about. Eight years ago, seven years ago, about seven years ago. And so I came here and um, I started this sort of, this sort of uh, habit of going to treatment centers. And, and, and I, was, uh, I would go to a treatment center and I'd be fully engaged and um, I'd be like the ultimate client because I would get other people fired up about recovery and right. um, could talk the game and, and all this shit. But I didn't do the program, like the 12 steps. I didn't do the program at all. Right. Um, 
you know, what I would do. And really for, for about 15 years, I had been going in and out of the rooms of AA because, you know, I, I saw that I, I, I had a problem and, uh, and I, it was the same thing where I would talk a great game, but I wouldn't do the steps. In fact, what I would do is I would get a sponsor. I'd feel really good when I got a sponsor. I'd be like, yeah, man, I'm doing this thing. I got a sponsor. And I would <laughs> check great. it off my list, you know? And then, and they then haven't done a single doing, fucking thing, but you can tell people you got his number in your phone. So it's all legit. I got his number. <laughs> yep, I, I, it's legit. It's checked off my list. I'm, I get I'm it. Practically, <laughs> I'm practically done with the program now. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> and, I've done and that then, so many times. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and so then I would do, you know, I would say I did steps one, two, and three, right? So I would, am I powerless? Is my life? Well, yes, my life is fucking unmanageable. I just went into Walmart, changed clothes, got drunk and slapped two women in the ass. My life's unmanageable. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I'm powerless. Uh, and and I, I get that this all happened because I'm powerless. Um, can you come to believe that power greater than yourself? Can your stories? Sure. Yeah, I can. Are you willing to turn your will and your life over? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, step four. Are you, it's time to take personal inventory of ourselves. Um, then I would fire my sponsor. Yep. Three-step <laughs> shuffle, man. We don't want to do that. Three-step shuffle. Three-step shuffle. I did not, could not, would not do that work. So no. I would go to treatment centers. And I would get, you know, three months, four months afterwards, you know, and, and then I would ultimately relapse and I would go to meetings and, you know, you hear a lot of stuff in the rooms that is absolute garbage. And, and one of them is meeting makers make it, you know what right. meeting makers make, they make fucking meetings. Exactly. But if you want to get sober and live, live, live a new life and, and recover, then yep. you, then you do the program, you do the steps and, and meetings helps. Um, meetings offers me the opportunity to, to extend my hand to alcoholics and need it and addicts and need it. Right. Um, but they don't make it, they make meetings. And, and, and so that's what I did. I went to meetings and, and thought that that would be enough. And, uh, and self, like you talk about self-awareness, you know, that's, that's the key. And now I'm aware of myself so I can change. Right. And, uh, I kept relapsing. I went to nine treatment centers, dude, over four years. Wow. Um, so that's just what I, I would just go to treatment centers. I'd have a period in transitional sober housing. I would be doing really good and going to meetings and, and, and then I would relapse. And you're on the fence. You were, you were exploring uh, this possibility, yep. but you, you weren't, you weren't willing to let go of the reservation. You, you were obviously right. still, it was weighing on your mind. Like when, when can I have another drink? Like I, right. I want a drink, you know? Right. That reservation was absolutely there. I never, I, because I never really did step one. That's the thing. I just said I did. It was sort of right. like intellectually, I did step one, like, you know, on paper, but at that fundamental level that we have to do step one, right? I didn't do it. Well, the funny so, thing for me, I think was, I, I think I had no problem admitting that, uh, I couldn't control uh, the drugs or the alcohol, you know, yeah. and that my life was unmanageable when I was on them. But I yeah. had these two reservations. One was that I had that, and it talks about that in the big book where I had this crazy idea that at some point I'd be able to drink or use like a normal person. Like it would mm -hmm. be different at some, yeah. sometime it's going to be better. And then, yeah. and then two, I couldn't, like let go of it you know i wanted 
I wanted so badly to improve my life, but I couldn't, I couldn't admit that that's what I was going to say. I couldn't admit that my life, I couldn't manage my own life even without it. You know, like I really, something in my mind or my ego told me that like, if I could put this shit down for a while, I'll fix everything because I can do that. But yeah. I know now that I suck at life and, and, and I need people's guidance to help me do a better job at living it. And, and I'm not ashamed to say that today, you know? I mean, I still believe right. that. And I'll tell you, I take my own power back all the time. And sometimes it's shit gets out of control for me emotionally or whatever. And, and in yeah. other areas as well. And it's, I talk pretty openly about that stuff on here and it's like, you know, that's all right. It sucks. Yeah, sure. It sucks. Yeah. But at least I can like adjust the sales. I can try something new. I can get more, get back into doing things that fixed me before, you know? Yeah, man. It's crazy. I like, the, I like the adjust the sales. I like that a lot. You well, know, that's all you can do, yeah. right? Like right. you got to right. keep moving is why I like that statement is because that statement is, it speaks like to something you can do while you're still moving where you can change direction, but you don't stop. You don't let say, you don't, you don't stop sit moving. stagnant. Yep. You don't sink. And, and, and because of acceptance, we can appreciate where the wind is coming from. Right. And I mean, it's yeah. like when you're riding a, like a jet ski or something, you yep. can't stand that thing straight up if it's not moving. But once you right. get it going, it's pretty easy to keep it straight. Yep. You know, yep. it's weird how uh, it works. Objects in motion tend to remain so. Fuck yeah, dude. Just keep yeah, going, man. dude. Felt yeah. like you said, fall forward. Fall, you know, fail fall better. Fail better. Fail better, man. Love it. Fail better. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I just kept doing this and, um, you know, going through and just getting more and more beat down and more and more demoralized, right? Because every time mm-hmm. I would really feel, because I honestly, I mean, I was honestly ready to get sober in my head. And so in my heart, I really felt like I was doing it this time and I was ready. And then I kept betraying that. Yeah. So each time a little part of my spirit died and, um, you know, about four and a half. Well, that's what it felt well, like. That's what it felt like. But it what was like really little, happening is that you were, you were conditioning yourself to that perfect surrender point. You were, you right. were, you were working towards that real surrender. That's the, right. And, and what was dying was my ego. Hell and to the yeah. It needs to be smashed. It needs to it be needs smashed. It needs to be, absolutely. We miss, we, we, yes, it has to be smashed. It has to be completely reduced. And, and that's what was happening. And, and on December 12th, right. of, or seven, I'm sorry, December 11th of 2015, uh, I got a call from my sister um, who was hysterical my only sister, my only sibling. Um, and she said, she thinks mom, I think mom's having a heart attack and, and my mom's healthy. I mean, she's, she just had a physical a week ago and she's my whole world, you know? Right. Um, and, and, uh, and she's hysterical. And so she's like, I'll, I'll just call you back and click. And, and um, you know, I'm, I had just woken up and at this point I was living in this transitional housing, GRH housing down by the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, just like horrible, horrible living situation. And I was drinking constantly. I mean, I had to drink, I slept with a bottle because I would wake up four or five times a night shaking so bad. 
that I'd have to immediately take a couple of pulls so I could get back to sleep. And While you're in a sober good. house or transitional. Well, oh yeah. It was, it was like transitional living. It was supposed to be sober, right? Yeah. But you had your own apartments and stuff and they didn't monitor anything and there was no expectations. It was really a wet house is what it was. Um, Damn. It though wasn't called that, but, in, and so I, uh, she called and, and, and I just immediately start drinking and I'm like, she's fine. She's going to be fine. I'm just full denial. And I, and I, and I, I get a Facebook message from um, my sister's husband, my, my brother-in-law and he, and I'm like, what's going on? And so he's communicating with me and, and he's like, I'm not sure they're working on her right now in the emergency room. There's like seven people working on her and I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, no, this isn't, this can't, this isn't happening. I'm, it's not her time. I'm texting this and, Three minutes later, he texts me back and he's like, Peter, I'm sorry, she's gone. <sighs> and you could have been there, man. I yeah. could have been there. You could have been there. I should have been there. I could have been there. And Isn't it crazy, though, how on this side, in our recovery, something like mm-hmm. that is something that we want to be there? On that yeah. side, no fucking way. You know, like we. And I think it's on a subconscious level. I don't think we're even honest enough with ourselves to be able to say, like, I don't want to fucking go see that or be in that environment, you know? Right. But right. it's because our automatic is like fucking like you said. You you had a hint when you got that call that something might be wrong, so you started hitting the bottle. And then when yep. it came, when the real bad news came, it's like, well, too late now. I fucking missed it, and I can't show up like this. So I'm going to fucking right. chug some more off of this fucker, you know? And it's oh yeah, like I always tell people, you know, in recovery, I'm stepping over dead bodies all the time. It seems like, and not just because of this disease, but you know, just, yeah. but then I think back and I think it was always that way. I just didn't know. Cause I was too fucking oblivious. I wasn't paying attention uh-huh. to what was going on in the world around me. That's you know? just it, man. I was That's in my own little world doing my own little yeah. thing. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. uh, self-absorbed, you know? Totally. Totally, dude. Yeah, self-absorbed. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and this this hit me so hard. I mean, my mom, and my mom, I, and I should explain this too, over the, over the course of my time here in Minnesota, that three or four years that I was going to multiple treatment centers, she was enabling me constantly, sending me money and um you know, and, and this totally, completely dysfunctional codependent relationship happened, you know? Right. Um, and uh, so she was my, she was my, one, the one person who hadn't given up on me, the one person who really still believed in me, who still right. talked to me and all she ever wanted, all she ever wanted was me to get sober. That's it. Because she knew if I got sober, that I would be good because she had faith in who I was and my, my capacities and my, my, you know, whatever. And, and, and that's all she ever wanted. And so suddenly like that, like, like a bolt of lightning out of a clear blue sky, she's taken Mm. away. And my last grip to any kind of sense of reality or, or the world was gone because she was my world. Ever since right. I was a little kid, man, and um, the totality of that just overwhelmed me, and I, I just, I spiraled, and um, the last for three months, just nonstop drinking, um, complete oblivion, 
several trips to the emergency room with alcohol poisoning. Um, one time I was in a coma for three days and I came out and um, when, I, when I left the hospital, I went straight to the liquor store. And, yeah. um, and finally, that's your solution. Night, that's my solution. That's the only solution I know, you know, even though it's not working anymore because it, I don't even get to a, a place of, of, of any kind of pleasure or any kind of euphoria anymore. I just right. get to a place where, where the, the horror is a little bit more dull. It's like now the machines get louder instead of getting quiet, right? They like get, that, yeah, man. that incessant exactly. fucking chatter. And that's like, yeah. I always say, if people would have told me in the beginning that, you know, this shit's going to feel great now, but if you do it long enough, it's eventually, it's going to change. What it does to you is going to yeah. change and it's going to take a turn on you, a really fucked up, twisted yeah. turn. I, I like to say, or I used to like to say that I would have probably listened and been like, oh, dude, yeah, I don't want that. But now, right. now I think... No, I probably would have been like, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. You don't know what you're talking about because I... I'm different. I thought I was so <laughs> smart. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Because, because I know that's happened to every single, but every single other person in history, but not me. I'm different. You know. Although I, mean, I, I will tell you this, man. I try to tell people, especially like newcomers who are still in that fun, you know, kind yeah. of... In, in, in like denial and like they're feeling the mm -hmm. pull and they don't like want this. They want that, you yeah. know? Um, right. I do try to let them know like that shit will take a turn on you, dude, you know, because nobody oh, ever did sure. tell me that. And now yeah. I know that they're not listening to me. So that's yeah. why I think that I wouldn't have listened <laughs> now, but I used to be like, Oh, if I would have known how, you know, like these steps, they sound horrible, right? But then I'd be like, man, if I would have known it was going to be that easy, I would have done this shit years ago because it wasn't. Right. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that it was yeah. nowhere near as bad as I built it up in my head it was going to be. And the right. outcomes, well, A, the outcomes were completely different than I expected them to be, almost polar right. opposite. But also um, what an actual amend looked like Mm -hmm. or what my actual perception would become like or change to be um, also yeah. was way different than, than I thought it would look like, you know, cause right. you're just, you know, like guessing really, you know, mm -hmm. when, when you're new and you're trying to, you know, as we do like come up with a personal narrative about how this is going to go, you know, we think right. we're fucking all fortune tellers and mind readers, you know, um, mm -hmm. but we're not, and it's, uh, everything is like a paradox, uh, really where what you think just flip that around and it's probably a lot closer to what it's actually going to be like. If you give this thing a try, you know, no As question. I mean, I, I tell people early in recovery, it is what I did early in recovery. When I was, when I came, when I came to a point where I had to make a decision, um, if I chose to do the exact opposite of what I wanted to do, it was almost always the right decision. <laughs> right uh, is that you know like, <laughs> so you know like because my because easier softer way is what i'm wired to do appeal to my ego and aggrandize my ego is what i'm wired to do so right. whatever i don't want to do early in recovery is probably the spiritual answer it's probably the right thing to do yeah. so in almost a perverse way i started doing things that were uncomfortable <laughs> um but you know that that final night I drank, um, I had a loaded gun in my mouth twice. And 
the second, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm drunk and sobbing hysterically, tears streaming down my face because alcohol doesn't work anymore. Yet, yet it's my only answer. Right. And so I had a gun in my mouth twice and the second time I just, I had some, I don't, I don't know to, I mean, I, I don't know what happened except that I had some sort of moment of clarity or something that flipped, some switch flipped inside my head and I realized that I did not want to die like this. I did not want to die like this. And I think my mom's death was a part of it and, and there's a part of me that's just like, I need to, I need to live, I have responsibility to live a life that would honor her. There's a part of me that was there that said that and and I, I threw the gun down and I, I, I did all the things I've been told for 15 years to do. And I, I reached out to another alcoholic um, who ended up becoming my sponsor. And, um, and I did the steps for real um, for the first time ever because I was completely 100% desperate. Um, and I mean, the fact that when we're faced with the choice of, of dying an alcoholic death or living a spiritual life and we actually have to debate it and we struggle with it is a sign of how sick we are. Right. You know, I mean, because I mean the choice between dying an alcoholic or, you know, a painful death or, or just living a spiritual life. I mean, the, the answer would simply be to live a spiritual life yet as an alcoholic, it's not, it's the most excruciating thing because, for me, the pain of remaining the same had to become greater than my fear of change. I love that. Yeah, that's. So it had it had to happen. It's the and only it way to, that you get compelled into action, into positive action. Right. It's, it's a gift of desperation. It's like you to took that other path and now there's a brick wall in front of you and there's no further to go except there's a yep. hole that goes down into the sewer and you got to crawl through the shit and you're like i don't right. want to go down into the shit i guess i'm gonna have to go right. try that other way now <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> yeah man and i had tried everything you know everything the big book talks about changing your liquors changing the time of day you drink you know just all you know they talk about harm reduction is a big harm reduction is a big deal nowadays and i think it has a lot of practical applications for certain people. Okay. I'm not going to even get right. into that too much, but, but I will tell you that as an alcoholic and, and hundreds of alcoholics I've talked to, we practice all kinds of harm reduction. We tried to control our drinking and moderate it and, and, yep. and all sorts of harm reduction. And, and for an alcoholic like me, it doesn't work. Okay. Because once right. I introduce the alcohol into my system, I have an allergy to it. Okay. And that allergy causes this obsession of the mind, which is compulsion. Right. And I, I'm off to the races. So That's I, so I turned myself into a corner. Yeah, man. So now you've had this moment and, and you, you have to do something different, right? And you, yeah. so you, you start with the steps. But since, since that, that moment, which we all know this is a redemption story that's our business here the way out we want redemption stories we want to sprinkle a little hope around yeah. what what has that journey looked like what what kind of things have you gotten involved with what kind mm -hmm. of uh, thing, inner work have you done you know, the the stuff that has continued to help you metamorphosize into the man you are today what's that journey looked like 
Well, the most important thing is I'm playing D and D again. No, oh, right on. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I wouldn't mind, but no. The most uh, true fellowship. Been, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the uh, I um, you know, today I, I I don't have six figures in my own house and um and and multiple vehicles and right. and a beautiful fiance and I am by far happier than I've ever been ever. I wouldn't trade a day of my old life for a day of today. Um, and the things that happened to me happened pretty quickly. Um, when I actually fully surrendered and, and for me, it wasn't surrendering so much as letting go. I was letting right. go of this outmoded idea that I could control this. I let it go because it wasn't working. It was outmoded. It didn't serve me anymore. I saw, I saw in a way I surrendered. I admitted I was powerless. Um, I came to believe that a power greater myself could restore me to sanity. I was able to do that because I saw in the rooms people who, who told the same history that I had, but had a radically different present story. Right. So they were doing, they did all these different things and got these incredible results. That's how I came to believe that there was something to it because I saw it working. So it was a logical thing to me. Um, and then I made a decision. Uh, when, I, when I came to believe, I, I made a decision to completely trust this program and turn, turn myself over to the higher power as I understood them. And my higher power as I understood my higher power at that time is very different than God as I understand God today. Right. And I think that that has probably constantly changed on my journey through life because I think spirituality is something that develops and grows. And, um, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's a very arrogant proposition for me to think that I'll ever even come close to understanding God, but I don't need to because, because I'm in love with the mystery. Hmm. Okay. I love the question. I don't need the answer. And if I live the question, I think I will live myself into the answer. Yeah. I think that's how spirituality is, man. And so when I turned myself over, dude, and, and I did step four, it was shortly after completing step four, step five, that I was walking by a liquor store and I realized that there was nothing that compelled me about the liquor store or anything that was in there. And right. for the first time since I probably first drank, I had absolutely no obsession to drink. No, none. And it was, it was a profound experience for me. I mean, it yeah. was almost like suddenly realizing your left arm is gone. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it was so much a part of me that it, it was just bizarre. But at that point, the obsession to drink and use was lifted. And, um, and, and so then, uh, you know, I, I started really, I mean, I dove into it and I, and I did the steps and, and after I worked through the steps, I immediately started working with others and I threw myself into that. I threw myself into my recovery just as hard as I threw myself into my using right. and drinking. Um, and so, and I got passionate about it and, um, and, and just like selling wine, I was selling recovery to people, okay? And I was passionate about the product and, and I used the product myself and, and right. I knew it worked. So, so those, same, those same, I think some of the same skills that, that allowed me to be good at, at selling wine 
allow me to be kind of effective in, in conveying the the benefits of, of recovery and stuff to people. But I, I started really sharing my passion for recovery with people. And um, I got involved with uh, Minnesota Recovery Connection pretty early on, um, which is uh, RCO, a recovery community organization here in Minneapolis, first one in Minnesota, I believe. Um, but they, uh, they have incredible resources and um, the recovery community. And uh, I, I worked on the phones talking to people uh, who signed up to have somebody call them once a week just to touch base with them on their recovery. And that was really powerful for my recovery because I was able to you know, be a, a source of uh, strength for people and, and, and just reassurance and help, help hold others accountable while holding myself accountable. And, and what I right. found out about, about this recovery thing and this 12-step program is that it's true. You can't keep what you have unless you give it away. Right. Um, I got so, I got so, I felt so good when I, when I, when I, when I gave it away to people, when I, when I helped others, that was the answer. And, and it was like you said, man, every, it's like the opposite of everything I'd ever believed. <laughs> right. you know, like it's, it's just totally counterintuitive to my alcoholic nature. All, all of the 12 steps, I mean, are, are like the anti alcoholic practicing steps, you know, like admitting I was powerless and, and, and my life had become manageable as an alcoholic. I admitted that I was all powerful and that my life was extremely manageable. You know, I mean, every, all the steps were the opposite. So it's counterintuitive. It goes against my nature. I have to do everything the opposite of how I used to do it. Right. And it's all paradoxical to me and it all fucking works. And, See, and for so me, I, it was, for me, it was just like, kind of like you had said, I had to let go of mm-hmm. any notion that I could control my life, <clears throat> which meant yeah. I needed uh, guidance. Right. So, right. It was put to me and I really took it to heart and I put it into practice for the first couple of years was, you know, you find a good sponsor that works for you and you let them do all your thinking for you. So I literally was calling my sponsor, um, you know, and that was at a time when I was still going through the, the, the custody stuff and, and the visitation stuff with my son and, and, you know, the ex-wife was really angry with me still and it was a, and, and I was broke and all this stuff. And dude, I mean, I would call him about some of the probably, you know, dumbest shit. And yeah. literally I'd vent and then he'd, he'd lay it on me and he would make suggestions. And every single time, dude, without fail, I my core said that that suggestion was stupid. But I said, uh-huh. but I pretty much said, fuck you. I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. And I would follow the suggestions. And, and so I think I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have been able to like on my own be like, this is what I feel like I should do. So I'm going to do this instead. I don't think I could have even done that. I needed someone else to tell me you got to do this. And then I'd be like, that's stupid, but okay. And then I'd be like reaping the rewards. Right. And feeling that what, what we, talk about you know is delayed gratification mm-hmm. um, and it sticks with you and in and, and like yeah. i said earlier all of a sudden you're noticing areas of your life improving that you didn't even think you needed to work on while all the stuff that you wanted to work on is getting better too and you're like this shit really affects every aspect of my being 
you know? Yeah, everything. man. Everything. It permeates all aspects of life. I am awesome. What you're, what you're saying is just, it's just hitting home, man. I was in the same place with my sponsor. I mean, I, the, the most mundane decisions I was calling my sponsor asking for, should I have a fucking bagel or some wheat toast? You know, what the fuck, you know, just pick. But seriously, like I, I, I made a decision, a conscious decision. And, 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 and to me, recovery was like this job at first. I thought of it like a job, right? And there's aspects of the job I'm not going to like. And my sponsor, I'm looking at my sponsor right now as my, the boss of my recovery. And this is a job. And so I'm just going to do what is suggested to me. Right. And, um, and I, and I really believed at the time and do today that if, if we do what somebody does, and we want what they have, we'll get what they got. Okay. Right. And, 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 and I think that, um, you know, there are, there are just certain actions you can take in life that, that a lot of successful people do, you know, have similar routines and stuff that if you employ them into your life, you're going to get different results. And these steps not only work on a practical level of just changing habits, kind of habitual stuff and, and social conditioning and stuff like that, but the most important aspect of this program is that it it allows us to have a spiritual awakening right so right. that's what it's all about that's that's the the that's the elephant in the room that i'm talking about specifically right now is that right. spiritual piece because my strong fundamental belief about alcoholism and addiction is that this is a spiritual malady yep. and the big book says on page I think it's like 68 or 67. It's talking about the fourth step, but it says if we get straightened out spiritually, the mental and the physical will follow. Yep. Everything works itself out, dude. Like uh, everything works itself out. And it's so true. Like I said, you know, it, it just ends up affecting everything. I mean, every single thing, you know, work the way that you, reacts to others and and the way that you think and re- respond to situations or or you know your own feelings even or your own self-talk yeah. will change yeah. because of it and you don't think when you get into this that any of that's going to happen you just really want to like not be fucking up your life anymore you know right maybe right. you want to get be able to hold a job or you know, get visitation with your kid back or save your marriage or whatever. Those are the kinds of things that we're shooting for. And then we get so, so much more, uh, so much more. So then, okay. So you, you got connected with Minnesota recovery connection. You're doing the telephone recovery support. What next? What, what else have you done? Cause I don't want to miss any of that. You, you do so much, dude. Well, you know, like I said, I was, I was working with guys, you know, so I, I'm, you know, I mean, I, like seven or eight guys I was working with, you know, pretty quick. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was so important to me. And, um, you know, no matter how much I was tripping in my head, dude, no matter how much I was tripping in my head, when I sat down with one of those guys and I opened myself up to them an hour later, whatever I was tripping on, I wasn't tripping on anymore. Right. Um, and every time, every time. And then I got involved with a um, organization called Recovery Corps. Recovery Corps is like this subset of the larger nonprofit organization called AmeriCorps. Um, AmeriCorps uh, is often known for being an organization that um, 
has been there for disaster relief and stuff like that in our country. It's sort of like the Peace Corps of the United States. Right. Um, but the program has expanded greatly over the years since the 80s when it first came about. Um, and, and so they started a pilot program called Recovery Corps three years ago. And um, I heard about it through Chris Kelly from Minnesota Recovery Connection. Right. Chris Kelly being one of my the greatest teachers in my life. Um, I could talk for two hours about her. But anyways, she, she hooked me up with Recovery, um, Recovery Corps. She told me about it and the opportunity. And what I heard about Recovery Corps was that it was a full-time training and motivational interviewing and, and then aspects of recovery. And then after the training, what they would do is they would um, send you to work at either a treatment center or some related facility and um, as a peer recovery specialist, um, you would be working with these people, volunteering 40 hours a week. Um, you got a living allowance that was modest, but, you know, um, it, it, it helped. And then you got uh, $6,000 towards education at the end of the year. Um, so I did this, and I did this for two years. And, and that first year I worked at Minnesota Recovery Connection. And it was really, really rewarding. And um, as recovery coach, one-on-one and, and with people on phones. And then last year, I worked for the DOC in a, uh, a newer program uh, that works with high-risk recidivists, so guys who've been in and out of prison repeatedly, um, who have alcohol and drug issues, uh, called Opportunity for Change. So I, I worked there as a peer recovery specialist. So that was, um, this last year has been, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done and probably the most rewarding. And I think that might be an axiom of life, that those things that are the most challenging are the most rewarding. I know with my amends, the hardest ones to make have paid off the most. Right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm working with guys who don't, for the most part, don't in any way think they have a problem. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So. So that's where we're starting. And, and I'm used to working with guys who are coming to me because they know they have a problem. Yeah. So this is, this is, this is boots on the street in the trenches work. And I, I, it was just a matter of me sitting with these guys and listening to them and talking to them for session after session after session, just building trust. Right. And, um, and they have no reason to trust me. And, um, they, most of these guys believed that they would be where they are right now forever, that nothing would ever change, that this is all that life had in store for them. And so what I believe is that we all have the answers within us, right? And, right. and, and what, what, what we need are we have teachers in life that can help elicit that and pull that out of us. This is all mm -hmm. God-given knowledge that we have deep inside of us, and, 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 and we can pull that out. And so I, I just tried to to talk to these guys and relate and listen and be, you know, understanding and, and um, give them affirmations and, and get to the point where I can start to help them connect the dots of every time they catch a new charge or they violate, they're fucked up. Right. Um, and <clears throat> with some of these guys, uh, I feel like I was successful in, in helping them. I, I think I was successful I think anybody that I open my heart to and I sit down with, I'm successful with, to be honest. But right. I guess what I mean is I, I, I saw some real results. I saw some of these guys make the connection and, and change their lives 
radically. No, I know and, what you and, mean, man. Cause like, yeah. when you, like say I'm sponsoring a guy, right. And he, yep. he goes back out and I can't get him to respond to me anymore. And I'm yep. like, and I'm like, dude, I used to go up to my sponsor and be like, you know, this shit's frustrating. I don't even want to sponsor people cause they just dip on me anyway. You know, I get like attached and then they, you know, right. like I take it personal cause it's all about me, you know, which is funny. He points right. that out and I'm like, fuck you. But <laughs> you know, he, he always says, he's like, well, are you still sober? And I'm like, yeah. And he's right. like, well, then it's working. So it's not necessarily about the right. outcome, but it's about the fact that you're um, trying, you know, you're doing things that have the potential to matter. And regardless right. of what they do in the moment there, you know, the hope is that you've, you really have impacted them though and planted seeds that maybe can sprout later. You got it. You know what I mean? You got it. But either way, it. either way, you're, yeah. this is doing something for you. And, and hopefully, yeah, that there's well, something happening for them too. You know, you said it, you said it beautifully. I mean, this is here. Here's the thing about recovery. Okay. We don't, we're, to, we're, we're often told in this society that we need to get in the right head space before we make the decision, okay? <laughs> we, need to make sure, we need to make sure our head is right until we make the choice to do this thing. Here's the thing. We do this thing so that our head gets fucking right. Right. We've got it twisted. You can't think um, your way we, into right action. You've got to act your no, way into right thinking. You got it. The actions themselves are what have value. Right. There's, there's, a, there's a mechanical truth to this and there's a spiritual truth to this. Right. So, you know, if we take certain actions, we'll get certain results. And, and this is known through empirical science with experiments and whatnot. And we'll change little variables in the experiment, uh, in the experiment with the different ingredients or, or conditions. And then we get a little different result in the end. And so then we start to be able to, to figure out, well, you know, if I change this thing, I'll get this result and, 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 and we adapt and change. And that's true mechanically with, with actions and, and, and results. But if you take spiritual actions, then not only do you get these benefits of, of, that you would get from any kind of actions, but you get these spiritual benefits. And that's why even if an, an atheist does these 12 steps, they're going to get spiritual results. If they take these spiritual steps, they'll get spiritual. Now, they might not call it that. They might call it intrinsic rewards. Or, I don't know. I, I think they would call it a spiritual. Like, I always say, you know, if you do this work, you're going to experience a spiritual awakening. Right. And then you can stamp whatever name you want on it. Right. Like, in the beginning, for me, it was the people in the room. You know, it was yep. the fact, like you said, I, the, the fact that I was hearing these life changing stories that, that were giving me so much hope. It made me believe yeah. that maybe it could work for me. So that was how right. I stepped to, that was how I stepped three. I, I got a sponsor and I, like I said before, you know, I did what he told me, even though I thought it sounded stupid, you know, or whatever yeah. that, that was it. That's how it started for me. And like you said too, it has evolved. And it's been a constant, you know, the, the way that that has changed, you know, and like my, my concept of higher power changed yeah. and, and it's been a beautiful journey, albeit painful at times. And, and I'm still making mistakes along the way for sure. You know, I'm learning here mm -hmm. just like all of us, you know, it's a lifelong. You thing. and me both brother. <laughs> I know. So, 
Holy yeah. Yeah. So you had, uh, the last thing you said was you were working for the DOC for opportunity for change. Are you still doing yeah. that currently? No. So now I'm, uh, I've got a new gig. So I did my two years of service with recovery core. Um, yep. so I've got, I've got $12,000 put towards my education. It's a beautiful program. Look into it. Recovery core. Um, but so now I'm working for a, a, a company called recovery. It's R E C O V R E E. And, um, they're working with the Kentucky jail system. And what we're doing is we're doing virtual, um, recovery coach sessions with these guys who are in this recovery unit at this jail. Okay. So these guys, they don't get any alleviation of their sentence or anything, but if they want to focus on their recovery, they can go into this program and there's a teacher in the morning and then they get to work with us. And, and I get 15 minutes with each of these guys. Um, and it is so immensely rewarding and, and brings me so much joy. And this is a paid, a paid job. You, you're yeah, doing? This is a job. This is a job, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm still, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm still, uh, sponsoring guys and I'm, I'm still chairing meetings and, and doing service work and all that stuff. But, to be able to also have a job yeah. that is, that is, that is allowing me to do recovery is to me just a bonus. I mean, some people say that you can't have recovery be part of your job. It's I think that's bullshit. I mean, if you can do service work and have a career doing this to me, that's just gravy. Okay? Well, they say so, that if you're, if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. You, you got it, brother. And, and I, I totally like believe that. And I think it's yeah. out there for me. I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and so I'm working with these guys and, uh, and they are engaged and they want to change. And, um, it's, it's awesome. Um, it's so rewarding. And you know, this, the life that I live today is, is just, it's nothing I would have ever expected, you know, because when I was living the life I lived before, uh, deep down inside, I was, I was spiritually bankrupt. Okay. Yeah. And, um, in a place of spiritual bankruptcy, I was determining what's going to make me happy. Right. So how the hell do I know? I'm no expert on happiness. I'm an expert on misery. Right. Um, so what I found is that if I want happiness and success in life, what I do is I consult those people that have it. Right. Um, and I take their advice because I'm not going to go to somebody who's, who's depressed and <laughs> hating themselves and, and, and drinking themselves to death for advice on how to get happy. Right. Um, and that's well, the sad thing is, before. too, is we don't know that we're spiritually bankrupt when we're in No, that not state. at all. We don't know, no. you know. Because so, our egos are blown up. Our egos feel great. And it's such a fine line, you know, because I can see that in somebody, but I got to be very careful how I approach that person if I want to try to make an impact in their life because the right. wrong thing to do is go, hey, look, I can see you're suffering and I think that you're like spiritually bankrupt. They're going to probably right. think I'm a fucking nutcase yeah. and an asshole. You know what I right. mean? <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got to be exactly. careful. But dude, that I love it. I love that, you know, we did the Recovery Coach Academy together. That's where I met you. Yeah, man. That was what, yeah. three years ago? Yeah, four, man. Four years ago, maybe? I don't know. Three and a half, like three and a half years. Yeah. But bro, like seriously, that was such a like amazing uh, I mean, not just on an educational level, but really like made me more aware of certain other things, you know, like cultural sensitivity and 
and yeah and, and like how to you know to be in a place of non-judgment because that right one of those things where so many like hard topics came up where you you would notice your judgment come out or maybe you didn't yeah. and somebody would call you on it and that would hurt but then yeah. you'd be like god damn you know that did happen uh it was very right. soul, it was very soul filling for me to do and and we've stayed in touch and i've loved watching your journey brother i love it i love it and i I can't thank you enough for all the service you do. Oh, by the way, uh, 2218, you're doing some stuff over there too, aren't you? Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm vice president on the, the board of trustees here at 2218. 2218 is an Al&L clubhouse, so we are um, not affiliated with AA, but there are AA meetings that happen here in this Al&L club and Al&L clubs across the country. We happen to be the oldest continuously running Allen Club in the world. Yeah. Um, so here at 2218, Dr. Bob has been here. Bill W. has been here. In fact, Bill W. has sat on the very couch that I'm sitting on right now. Um, <laughs> That's awesome, man. And, and so I like to come in this room and set up the vibes. But yeah, yeah um, we, we, have, we have a bunch of meetings going on at all times. There's a web website, 2218 Allen dot uh, com that you can go or dot org that you can go to um, and check out when the meetings are. But it's uh, it's a great place uh, to come to connect with people who are engaged in their recovery and right. and living a better life. Hell yeah, man! You're awesome. Did you? Uh, so are you? Are you still putting together events over there too, like event coordinating or whatever? Oh man, yeah. Like on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night now we have. Um, Recover Oki, which starts at 9.30. So it's what? like karaoke. It's, it's oh, Recover Oki. You do not have to be drunk to do karaoke. That's what people are finding out. Dude, not I already knew that. I rock at karaoke. Okay. This is nice. Wednesday nights? Wednesday nights at 9.30. Come Why down. does it, it happen so blast. late? I get up at like 3.20 I, in the morning, dude. I, I do too, dude. But I, I sometimes, I'll lose some sleep for it. But yes, because that's our last meeting. We, we have to do it late. Um, and then we have open mic nights on Friday nights at 9.30. And people are coming down with guitars. We have a drum kit set up. We have a keyboard set up. We have a guitar available. People are doing poetry, playing music, jamming. Yeah. I mean. And then you did comedy. the drag show. That was a big hit. That, and we got another drag show coming up in May. That shit's um, crazy, man. You're bringing a yeah. lot of new new things into there, and it's is it because is it bringing coming, in a yeah. lot of more new people? Oh yeah, dude. Dude, that's I mean awesome. this place this this place had fallen on some kind of dark times. It was it was sort of like a lot of crusty old guys, you know, talking about the young people nowadays. You know, now right. the young people are engaged and they're coming in here and and new ideas and new energy and so and those uh, old people are, are probably like, oh god. <laughs> but then well, they're seeing you know, their club boom again so that's they I'm, are, sure they're, I'm sure they're more accepting because it's breathed new life they are dude yeah, that's great those old coming i'm they glad are. that they that because i know you were a little like you know nervous or whatever when you like started doing the events uh, whether or not right. they would really draw in but dude, right. i mean i went to the drag show obviously i'm not into you know that myself but <laughs> to check it out and support you know everyone yeah. and and throw yeah. in a fucking couple bucks into the kitty and that was a yep. big success there was a ton of people at that thing oh, and man. the karaoke was, idea bro i'm yeah. with you i like 
they do it every once in a while at Fridley and I love it, but they do right. it on Saturdays so I can do that. You know, like right. I'll have dance or something and I don't work on yeah. Sundays, but man, I right. got it. If we ever have a Thursday off or, you know, like a holiday week or something, man, I'll be come out yeah. there on Wednesday night. I got to remember that. Dude, for sure. And one, one final thing, we have a ride for recovery coming up. We had the first one last year and this is where a bunch of uh, people bring their motorcycles out and they, they, they gather at the club here and then they leave and they go on a, a day trip and they visit different Alano clubs in Minnesota and Wisconsin and they make this route and then they come back and it's all for recovery. It's a fundraiser for 2218. Last year, it grossly exceeded our expectations. So this year is going to be bigger. That happens in early June. It's on our website. Um, but ride for recovery is a huge deal that's coming. What up. is what is the website for twenty two eighteen again? Alano, a twenty two eighteen Alano dot org. Large Okay. Awesome, man. Well, hey. Yes. Thank you for being on the show, dude. I'm so thank glad you for that having this. Absolutely, yeah. man. It's a pleasure as always. I love talking recovery with you, man. So. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, anytime, man. All you guys out there in Whale Up Podcast land, take care, and we'll see you later. Peace. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week, so keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.